Five, Welcome along to From the Valley podcast. This is another international edition of the podcast today. We've got two very special guests. Um, the new guest uh, to the uh, podcast today, uh, his name is Tariq Dennison. Now, Tariq Dennison, he's a wealth manager that uh, works uh, uh, in the Asia region, but obviously has uh, two different types of, uh, I guess, clients that he really works and, and knows and helps a lot with. A, basically people that have got US retirement plans that are based in Asia, helping uh, high wealth individuals there and, and obviously uh, trust as well. And then obviously the Asian, I guess the uh, US market that invests in Asia. So obviously helping uh, clients in the region, uh, looking for investments in, in the US. So he has a very well, you know, a lot of wealth of experience when it comes to dealing with Asia and the US, their relationships, um, how the global equity situation uh, is affected by different events in the past, now and in the future. Uh, so very good knowledge there. He's also the treasurer of the Republicans Abroad Hong Kong. So welcome along to the podcast firstly, Tariq. Thanks for having me, Tim. And uh, welcome back, uh, Nicholas Wilshire from uh, uh, ZH Recruit, also the vice uh, president of Aus Auscham, who we had on the podcast uh, less than a couple of weeks ago. Nick, welcome back. Thank you. And thanks you very much, Nick, for uh, lining up Tariq. I think this will be a very uh, some fascinating insight as to what's actually happening out there in the, in, the, in, in the global economy, what's actually happening in the world of politics, maybe some predictions on a few things that are happening, uh, some reactions to different, uh, I guess, uh, leaders such as Donald Trump, uh, uh, how they're sort of uh, being handled, I guess, uh, in Asia and, and America. So first of all, I guess we'll start with, uh, if you don't mind, Tariq, we'll probably start with uh, politics. Um, sure. let's, let's talk about a bit about uh, 2020. So 2020 has been a very interesting year. When it, when it sort of came to January, um, everything, I guess, felt the world was sort of going in a normal trajectory. I don't know if you, what, what your feeling is about that, but the general consensus here in Australia was we were sort of going towards a normal tra trajectory. Uh, we get whiffs of the coronavirus in January. Um, the rest of the world doesn't read much into it at all. It doesn't think it's going to be uh, affect anything. Uh, and it's not until mid-March does, does a penny drop and say, okay, well, shit, you know, basically what's really happened here is that it's, it's, a, it's a global pandemic and every country in the world is somehow affected by this. And uh, when it comes to infections, when it comes to uh, the economy. So, and then we'll talk about more recent events, uh, Tariq, as well. But, Tell me a bit about your thoughts about uh, how 2020 sort of started out when you're sort of looking at the, when you're sort of looking exactly what's happened there. Well, I think for a lot of people I talk to, 2020 is a year that seems to have lasted a lot longer than a year already. Um, I think you've summarized it uh, fairly well already. Now, given that I live here in Hong Kong and many of us here in Hong Kong remember SARS back in 2003, um, the idea of a virus outbreak like this, in fact, this coronavirus is called SARS-CoV-2. It is you can be thought of as a form of SARS, which was also a coronavirus. I think the initial thought was that it was more or less going to be contained. It was more or less going to be uh, to stay where it was, a lot like SARS was. The impact was probably going to be somewhat similar to SARS. We were going to see an increase in hygiene measures, as we, st as we still see today in Hong Kong. Uh, even last year, if you walked around Hong Kong, you'll still see labels on elevators saying button sanitized every hour. You'll still go to Chinese restaurants where there's a separate set of serving chopsticks. Some of those things that I've noticed ever since I've lived here have been here ever since uh, the first SARS. 
And I think what really caught a lot of the rest of the world you know, off guard is that the virus came to their shores in ways that SARS 2003 did not. Um, so I think at first, when you're talking about the market's reaction, even in early mid-February, uh, US markets were already hitting all-time highs. They were basically shrugging off the risk that there was going to be, um, that there was going to be any real impact from uh, this new coronavirus. March was one of the fastest and fiercest market declines we have ever seen. Um, now, whenever you look at a market decline, you have to separate prices from actual economic activity. There's no doubt that many of us realized that this would be a tough year for travel. This would be a tough year to own a hotel. This would be a tough year to be a landlord because the, that revenue, that income that you're going to be getting was going to be reduced. Now, was the lifetime value of that income really reduced by 25% in one month? Uh, I think that's the kind of overreaction that those of us who look in the markets and look for opportunities, uh, you know, we're asking for many, many different names in very, very quick successions. Some of the more aggressive trades that we did is we did buy small positions in cruise lines back in March. We did buy small positions in the Korean stock index at that time. Uh, Korea, as you probably remember, was one of the countries that came out very early, did a lot of testing, seemed to really apply their experience from MERS and keeping it under control. Um, and part of at least the explanation I've been given is why has it been such a big problem in the U.S. is I remember in early March seeing a video of the New York City subway system being wiped down and thinking how unusual that looked. I mean, you know, Nick, in Shenzhen or here in Hong Kong, uh, you know, the, our subway systems are immaculately clean. The, um, the handrails are wiped down. Uh, you know, the buttons are always very, very clean. The standards of hygiene are, are just generally quite high because we remember SARS. Whereas the New York City subway, if you've ever written it, is, is filthy. Um, you know, most of those handrails and screens that you touch, you know, are, were not cleaned at all. And so my first thought, I, I say there's a lot of little things that got things to way, where they are. But one of the reasons that I think this virus hit the U.S. so hard is just that there were a lot of U.S. habits which made it easier for the virus to spread that um, were, you know, much, uh, that on the flip side allowed a lot of Asian cities to contain it better. Yeah, okay, so that's, that's quite interesting. Um, we've, we've, so we've Donald Trump's reaction to all of this. Um, now, it certainly, um, I mean, he historically up until recent times has, has been a reasonably popular uh, um, president over in the United States, but he's always had his detractors. He's always had people that don't like oh, sure. him. He's always had his 50, 55, 60% of people that are against him, always, but even since that'll probably That'll probably be your understatement of this episode. So the thing is, and, uh, and going into this, um, certainly his opposition, uh, you're talking about a fairly you know, older gentleman in Biden. Tell us about uh, what do you think Trump's, you know, his reaction to all of this and how you think the US people are seeing Trump at the moment. Um, I guess not so much the last week or so, but as the, the, the mm -hmm. coronavirus was sort of uh, hitting. So um, certainly in March, April, uh, a lot of the talk of the 2020 election was centered on how would voters judge Trump's handling of the coronavirus outbreak. Mm. Now, um, that's true. I, I mean, I think the way that I've asked, those who hated Trump last year, and to be fair, I don't feel, find a lot of people in the middle. You know, I find people either generally like Trump and support him, or they absolutely hate him and they think he's the Antichrist. I mean, I don't meet a lot of people in the middle. 
Um, those who hated him last year, you know, hate him this year, and they think he's done absolutely nothing right with the coronavirus. Those who liked him and supported him last year, overall, I think, try to understand his reaction to it. You know, the fact that he is a president of a federal republic of 50 states. He generally wants to, uh, I think, represent the views of Americans who don't want to be told to put on masks, who don't want to be told uh, to stay at home, who, you know, want to try to find practical solutions for getting back to work. But I think what we've seen is the strength of the U.S. reply is that there are 50 states. And Americans generally will trust their state and local governments and will you know, look to state and local governments for local issues more than they would look at presidents, except when it comes to election time. You know, so that's a, that's a really strange thing, I think, when it comes to elections. Even though I'm up here trying to get Americans to, you know, to register to vote, make sure we send in absentee ballots, mm. um, it's a hard time, I think, whether for Americans at home or even out here, how many of them even know their senator? How many of them know their congressman? How many of them know a lot of the local issues? Because it's the president that gets all the media attention because you cover that story once and you can publish it in all, in all 50 states. So yeah, so no doubt, I think that how somebody feels Trump has handled the coronavirus is likely to be a factor in whether or not they'll vote for him in November. Yeah, definitely. Um, but ha what do you think are the main things that, uh, I mean, there's obviously, Hindsight's one of those things, but what are the main things that you think he could have done differently to how he ha how he sort of has um, acted, you know, during March and April in particular? Well, I've never run a country of 330 million people, so I, I always admit that it's really tough for me to try to to play Monday morning quarterback on these things. Yeah, I mean, the fact is, he, he is he is he is a president of a country with a fairly strong bill of rights and a fairly strong you know feeling of uh, you know our rights. Well, and, and you have to, that's how you have to think of the, um, some of the reasons why American cities couldn't do the same things that, say, South Korea did. Uh, you know, in South Korea, for example, the level of surveillance, their ability to do testing and tracing, you know, without real, a lot of regards to personal privacy is something you could never do in the U.S. You know, the constitutional rights Americans have had to privacy and they feel are absolutely sacred. Uh, yes, they, they are freedoms, but those freedoms, you know, come with a cost when you're trying to get people to not, you know, go out and crowd themselves on a beach and, uh, you know, and spread a virus among one another. So, you know, I, I have to admit, he was facing a really, really uh, tough situation. Now, I think the fact that he was deferring to two governors uh, was the most natural thing he could have done. Now, other things he could have done better, he could have probably helped on the sourcing and supply chain side of things. It certainly didn't help that one of the things we here in Hong Kong know Donald Trump for is that he's the one that started the trade war. And you can think lots of different things, things about this, but the fact is the US buys a lot of stuff from China. These ventilators, a lot of this equipment, a lot of that stuff is still made in China. And you know, it's a kind of a strange situation. You can call it conspiracy theory, you can call it whatever it might be. But here we have a president who's been bad-mouthing China, starting a trade war with China. Now he's in a really tough position of, does he eat his words? and say, let's go negotiate a mega deal where we can get all the ventilators we need for Americans and realize that we're going to have to get them from China, or try and come up with a plan B, C, and D. Um, so, you know, I know that that might not be the, uh, the conclusive answer you were looking for, uh, but, it's, it's, it's I, I, you know, but I'm, I'm trying to lay out that it's, it was a complex situation and there were a myriad of ways that, uh, that it could have been handled. So do you think with respect to the, um, within, with respect to the Republican Party internally, do you think he's more popular now or more popular than pre-COVID-19? 
Well, I, I think you know quite well, even since 2016, he was a divisive figure within the Republican Party. And I, I, I found the challenge of trying to explain how did he, he, first of all, get the Republican nomination, and then how did he win? Because as you remember as a background, he was a lifelong Democrat. Um, and it was a bit of a surprise that he became a Republican, and then he got the Republican nomination. He absolutely decimated every other Republican candidate, and then he won. And as you know, there are many Republicans overseas and at home who would not vote for him. You know, who thinks that he wasn't the traditional conservative, you know, he, wa he wasn't as sincere in his support for evangelicals, who even, let's say, more recently were critical of how he held a Bible in front of an Episcopal church in Washington, D.C. All of these things, which, you know, I can completely understand. But the way that Trump won in 2016 was by winning Democrats, you know, by winning swing voters, by winning, you know, people that voted for Obama in 2012, you know, and getting him under the Republican big tent. Um, that's one challenge with the two-party system is that, you know, you can reliably get 47% of the population on your side. Both of the major U.S. parties more or less have that. It's that middle 6% that they're always fighting for. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the issues that we have right now about Republicans being more or less willing to support him, I don't think the events of this year are as significant as what we already were facing back in 2016. That's very, very interesting. Um, so we've, I was going to say with Trump, uh, Nick, did you have another question? I, was, I had something. But... Uh, you go, you go, you go. You go. Um, okay, we'll go back to, I guess, more recent uh, events in the US. Uh, obviously, when, sometimes you get a bit of a domino effect. And uh, what we've sort of seen, and ha ha will this domino effect, will it sort of play much into what's actually going to happen as far as global equities from here on out as well? That's what I want to know. Um, when, when we're talking all of a sudden, you know, uh, this guy gets uh, basically gets st stomped on as far as his neck uh, in, in Minneapolis, uh, Floyd. And uh, the cop just let him, you know, 15 minutes didn't uh, let him up. He was begging for his life. And all of a sudden, the, just because of one incident, one incident, the whole country has gone even crazy again. And I think it's got something to do with a, a hangover from the, what's going on in the coronavirus to a degree as well. Once you get one thing, we, seen, we see this in history. Once you sort of go along one path, then all of a sudden, bang, something it doesn't have to be something too significant, but it just really rips the heart out of, out of the country even more. Tell me what you think about why, I mean, racism's always been around. Racism has always been a huge factor in any country in the world, including the States. Why is this, is, do you think it's just a, something that's snowballed because of where things are at in 2020? Uh, well, I've definitely heard the narrative that this flamed up more because people had been cooped inside with the coronavirus so much. Uh, yep. Definitely a lot of the more sober messages I've heard about it is that it's not just about this one incident. It, it generally is about a longer history of police brutality, about you know, less fair treatment of, of black Americans in the United States, and sometimes even about economic issues. Other issues which I'm really not qualified to go into no. in, in, a super, in a super level detail. But I, uh, I think Michael Milken probably described it best when he talked to a black protester of the Vietnam War all the way back in the 1960s and 70s. Um, there's a real question, I think, in anyone who's protesting right now in the, in the America that they live in. You know, if they're American citizens and they don't feel that they have access to the American dream, if they don't feel that they are um, 
they have fair access to legal treatment or they'll be fairly treated by the police. I believe that's the, that is the more genuine driver of a lot of these protests and the ones that a lot of us can support and agree with, you know, and, and, and vocalize and say, okay, these are things that need to be changed. Now, part of where it gets a little more troubling is that it also spills over into rioting and looting. Those are the types of things where you see lots of different ideas on where to draw the line. I've seen lots of people who say, well, there's no one right way to protest. You know, who are you to judge that uh, you know, someone is going and looting? And then on the other hand, I say, you know, I see kind of these sarcastic comments. There's no better way to say you stand up for uh, you know, racial equality than uh, breaking into and stealing a pair of Gucci slippers. Um, you know, and, and that's the last thing I, you know, I, I wanna see. I mean, when I look at how an American citizen is treated on US soil by American police officers, you know, what was done to Floyd, you know, was tra was tragic, and it should be dealt with. There, you know, there should there should be justice. And most of the protests you've seen have called for justice. You know, I want to live in a country where I feel, you know, citizens are are treated fairly, and you know, and and our rights are respected. Um, that's, you know, I I think that's in a way just common sense. Now you talk about racism being something in every country. It definitely happens in different ways in many, many different countries. When you were talking about every country, the first country that came to mind was Iceland. Many people might say, well, maybe there's not a lot of race, racism in Iceland. It's one of the more racially uniform countries in the world. Um, racism in Japan as well. Might, you might feel very, very different in a lot of ways. First of all, you might not notice it most of the time because so much of the country is Japanese. Hmm. Uh, and actually, even as a foreigner, as a gaijin, I go there. I actually don't feel that I've faced a lot of racism in Japan you know, as a gaijin. Now, maybe it's much more subtle. Maybe, um, you know, it's something that has happened in ways that I haven't even noticed or, or appreciated. Yeah. But one yeah. thing I know is, is Japanese police, for example, have the ability to detain, detain someone for 20 days without charging them. Um, you know, so really? your hmm. typical Japanese citizen in many ways has less rights before a police officer than a typical American citizen does. Hmm. Um, so... You know, I, I obviously that's one challenge or maybe benefit I have of being a, you know, an international business person, an international observer. I get to compare how different problems are in different countries. But I'm sure you, you and I could point to five different countries in Asia where racial problems are far worse than they are in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, sure. so a couple of things out of this. So where do you think global sort of... Um, equity markets go for the rest of the year based on where we're at, or is that it's too hard to predict with the chaos in the world at the moment? Well, I don't, I don't like to predict equity prices. I mean, you know, markets, markets go up and down. I do have to give credit to Josh Brown recently for one of the better analogies I've heard on how to understand markets. They say, think, you know, think of the, the market as a dog being walked by a woman through the park. And you can see that the woman is walking across the park. The woman is the economy. And the dog is on a leash. It's not going to get too far from the economy, but the dog can run ahead. It can run behind. It can run to the side. It can dig its dirt, its nose in the dirt. Um, and those are the prices that'll swing up, up and down a lot more than the real economy. So I'm not going to try and predict which way the dog is going to run, but I think we've got a pretty good idea on the economic impact we should expect from the virus, from the civil unrest, from the political uncertainty. Uh, you know, and the Economist has described this as the 90% economy. You know, and you, you see some of this around you kind of where, wherever we are, uh, you know, for the, you know, amount that you're spending this month on transport, on going out to restaurants, on hotels, you know, how much is your spending down in all those areas? How much is that you're spending going to be down six months from now? Um, you know, it's, you, 
my guess is you're probably spending 30% as much on those things as you did a year ago. You might be spending 80% as much on those things six months from now as you did a year ago. Um, that's really, when I look at equity markets, what I look at. And I'm looking to buy into equities where the dog has run further behind, uh, you know, but the underlying fundamentals are still good. And I'm avoiding areas where I think the dog has run too far ahead. One example right now is we're talking on a platform called Zoom. Zoom stock has been one of the, the best performers by, by far. And I should fully disclose, our, our firm has a short position in Zoom because we believe it's wildly overvalued. We don't believe its fundamentals, its actual eventual profits are going to add up to what the market has, has priced into it. Yeah. Um, and that's the, that's the evaluation we make with every single company we look at. We say, how much cash profit is it, is it gonna make over the next 10 to 20 years? And is it currently selling for a lot less than that or a lot more than that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So things that, that obviously get too popular, you know, it, it's, it's it, not everyone can get, uh, you know, it's, it's the, I guess, the old saying goes that, you know, if you follow the, sh if you follow the, I guess, where the sheep are sort of heading as far as, you, you're never going to sort of get too far ahead. So you've got to, you're obviously got to, to know, you know, what to look for and, you know, obviously, uh, someone with a, as wealth of experiences that you've got, you've seen all this, um, you know, went over the course of time and you can say, look, well, that, you know, you, you can make those calls. So, yeah. Do you think there's been any, let me jump in. Do you think there's, there's been any regions that have done significantly well from an equity perspective, any countries, any markets that have done exceptionally well um, with respect to the coronavirus during this period? Well, the one that I mentioned earlier was South Korea. I was mentioned in a Reuters article earlier this week uh, when I was asked specifically about the Korean market, trying to explain how is it up almost 50% off of its March low. And part of what they were asking me as a wealth manager was, you know, were we buying in March? Are we selling now? Are we buying more now? Um, and that's one example. Overall, it is a fairly high quality economy, a fairly high quality country. The companies there are good companies, profitable businesses, not a terribly high amount of debt, and they're trading at 12 times earnings. So, you know, if you can find a good company trading at valuations like that, that's generally a good investment. Now, when it right. rises 50% and it starts trading at 18 times earnings, it's not expensive, but it's certainly not as cheap or, or as attractive as it once was. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of other markets that I look at in the region. Obviously, I'm based in Hong Kong, and I spend a lot of time looking at greater China. That includes Hong Kong listed equities, mainland equities, um, you know, and that's been in the news a lot in, 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 in negative terms because Trump has ordered U.S. government pensions to not buy Chinese stocks. And we're now seeing, you know, a possible law that might cause a lot of Chinese stocks listed in the U.S. to delist. Now, these are all, you know, many of them are, good, are decent companies. There are a few of them that are frauds. And they're, that's, that's really, that's why we all have to take off our shoes at the airport, because, you know, there are one or two bad actors that force us all to take off our shoes. Um, but usually whenever there's fear, whenever there's bad publicity, you know, kind of the opposite case of the Zoom, that, that's usually where there's opportunity. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the example I, I talked about, I recently posted a tweet from 2010 when I talked about how I was deciding whether to use the $1.10 in my pocket to buy a pack of chewing gum or a share of Citigroup. And when I got the reminder, I unfortunately lamented, ah, dear, I, I bought the gum. You know, if I bought the Citigroup, you know, because in 2010, nobody liked Citigroup. It was terrible. It was awful. And mm -hmm. why, have you, why have U.S. stocks done so well in the past 10 years? It was because you have to remember, 10 years ago, everyone thought the U.S. was in the dumps, and the U.S. has surprised everyone to the upside. 
10 years ago, everyone thought China was going to take over the world. And they've dis over the past 10 years, they've disappointed. That's why investors in Chinese stocks 10 years ago haven't done as well. Now, I, I expect we, we see that cycle going back and forth. So if you ask me looking forward, over the next 10 years, there are several Asian markets that I think are probably going to outperform the U.S. market, in part because of sentiment. People are not as optimistic about them. And I think their fundamentals, and their demographics are strong. So any tips? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've, uh, I've more or less give, given you the recipe. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't like uh, giving specific tips other than, you know, every now and then disclosing positions that, that we actually do. Not, 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 on actual, sorry, not on actual stocks per se, but probably tips on which markets are going to evolve. Well, certainly. I mean, I often say start with ones that you're comfortable doing some analysis and some legwork, some homework in. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, clearly if you're not comfortable with China for some reason, I mean, there are several other markets that you could look at. If you don't, uh, you know, the Japanese market has gone much better in having more and more filings available in English. So even if you don't read Japanese, it's a very large and very developed market, but it's not one that's going to grow terribly well. Singapore is also a highly developed market where the domestic economy is not going to grow terribly well. But there are filings there in English, has fairly well-respected, you know, rule of law. Um, some of the other markets in Asia are a little more difficult to access. So just being able to open an account and make investments yep. there may be a bit more of a challenge. But uh, you know, later this month, for example, I'm doing, other, I'm doing a webinar on, the, uh, on Singapore's ETF market. And then on June 18th, I'm doing another webinar on investing in India after COVID-19 specifically. So it's a, it's a busy time right now where I'm uh, trying to put together materials on each of these different markets. So what, have you sort of had a lot to do with India, I guess, as far as investing as well? Or is that sort of an area that you sort of look at pretty closely? Well, um, I, would, I would say moderately closely. The thing with India, it's, a, it's also a difficult to access market. So like Korea, you know, you can't just open an account in Hong Kong that will give you access to 10 markets, including India, because you actually have to have a local custodian. Uh, you know, SEBI wants to know who the end beneficiary of every share is. So it's a trickier market to go buy individual shares in. There are a few offshore funds that will give you access to India. And, uh, and some, of those have done, some of those have done better than others. Uh, but it is one that I look at because it is a market that is way too large to ignore. And it's one yeah. that in many ways is very promising. They have a young population. And um, What's the average, the, you know, the average age of, of India? Is that sort of like below 35? Or what it would... Oh, yeah, it's below 30. I mean, come okay. on. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you look at the size of a typical family structure, mm. you know, it's only really in the millennial generation that they've started having, having far fewer kids there. Mm. Um, so that's why uh, within the next few years, India's population is projected to surpass China's population because China mm. had the one child policy since the 1970s. Mm. India had other measures going back to the 70s and 80s. For example, you might have heard of the emergency. You might have heard of uh, very other controversial measures that, that, uh, that happened a while back. But more than anything, I mean, uh, my, I would say kids a few years younger than me were one of the first generations to only have one sibling because it was very common to have to say, you know, have two, two children, stop at two. But that was still much better than, the, that was in many ways better for India than the one child policy that you had in China. So India's population is projected to surpass China's. India's GDP is projected to surpass the US's only by 2050. Now between now and 2050, the really remarkable part is GDP per capita is expected to go from $2,200, 2,200 US dollars per person to 22,000 US dollars per person. And that is a, now if, that's, if that happens, that would be nothing short than a remarkable transformation. 
it's basically a projection that India is going to do what China has done in lifting record numbers of people out of poverty. Um, so it's a market definitely be worth watching if you're optimistic like, like I am in the uh, ability for the market to do that. Interesting, very interesting. Um, I don't know when Robin Nick, uh, Nick has uh, gone to, but obviously he's a connection or something's happened there. So we'll, we'll obviously uh, go for a little bit longer and see if he does come back and see if he had, had, has any other questions as well. But uh, um, obviously fairly well traveled. Um, you, you did some study over in the United States when you coming as, as you're sort of learning the ropes and that sort of thing. Well, I, I'm I'm American. I I went yeah. to university. I mean, I, I did grow up on U.S. Army bases right, yeah. in yeah. in Germany mostly. But uh, I mean, I went to American schools in Germany run by the U.S. Army. They were called mm -hmm. Department of Defense Dependent Schools. And then I went to university in the U.S. I did the first 14 years of my career in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. So I worked in San Francisco. I worked in New York for a while. You know, mm -hmm. that included Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Um, so yes, I mean, I I know a lot about the U.S. system. From my time working yes. there, and that's that's the reason that I understand 401k plans and IRAs and 529s so well. And in, in terms of business, one of the things I realized when I came out here, I don't have a lot of competition in that space. There yeah. aren't a lot of wealth management firms in Hong Kong who, first of all, are happy to open accounts for Americans or, or for people who want to invest in the U.S. And second of all, how many of them know how to set up a 401k plan or know what to do, you know, with an IRA back in the U.S. Um, so that's a very valuable niche uh, that I've been able to find and, and develop here. Um, you know, and what's interesting, what I've talked to Nick as well, trying to understand a little bit about your superannuation system, you know, how that's different from, you know, our 401k plans and, uh, and so forth. I'm naturally a curious person. I like to look around the world and see yeah, which countries I mean, are doing. I might just go into it very briefly. Uh, the self-managed super fund, we have self-managed super funds here in, in Australia as well. So you can actually manage your super uh, self I guess, in a way, obviously you get help with professionals, like, you know, people like yourself. But um, when I'm licensed to give advice on setting up self-managed super funds, um, so it's, 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 it's only been around for about a quarter, about a quarter of a century or something like that, um, since they started, in 1993, I think it was, 92, 93, uh, Paul Keating at the time. But, yeah, self-managed super funds is, is something that I guess Australia's got unique that really isn't, you know, there's, there's not too many other places in the world that run a system like that. Um, uh -huh. Be able to have a fair bit of control over how you invest. I'll let Nick back in. Um, but, you know, you can obviously invest in property, shares, cash, fixed interest, um, you know, gold. Which which actually, U.S. IRA and 401k plans are like that as well. Um, mm. It's just, as I've under, understood, it's probably not quite as standardized as you have in Australia. Yep. So I have been interested in learning not just your self-managed supers, but also just even your one that I very often see admired and, um, you know, one that I'm always keen to compare to the U.S. system. Yeah, no, great, excellent, good stuff. Nicholas, you sort of uh, ducked off there for a bit. Are you okay? How's it all going? Yeah, yeah, no, good. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Still all good. Okay, excellent. So, uh, did you have any anything else, uh, Nick, that you wanted to talk to Tariq about? We're probably in the last five or ten minutes of the podcast. If, if there's any other any other sort of topics that you wanted to talk about or, or bring up, uh, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm curious as to understand whether Trump is using the protests. Because I've heard that, and I'm, I'm not sure whether it's just rumours or, or not, but I'd be interested to get your 
view on it where the Trump's using the protests as a way to sort of, you know, politically divide so he can sort of focus on his core, um, his core supporters. Well, uh, I, I have, I definitely believe that you should not underestimate Trump. I have to say that I, I definitely don't under, I don't understand the way that he works, but what he has done, you know, has certainly worked in, in certain places. And, uh, you know, in terms of what benefit he gains from dividing the country, I mean, you know, I myself, am, I, I'm a uniter, you know, I would like to see, you know, us all uniting under the flag. You know, when you say make America great again, I, I take that as make America great again, not make mm. half of America great again. Um, so, I, I have to admit, I don't fully understand his media strategy or if he's always necessarily intending to divide. When I listen to what he actually says, a lot of what he actually says, not what other people say that he says or how other people interpret what he says, a lot of what he actually says actually sounds relatively sensible. You know, he's mm-hmm. condemning violence. He's, you know, uh, saying that he's right going to... Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's where... I would encourage any voter or anyone who's genuinely interested to go to the primary source. Because one thing about Trump is that the mainstream media definitely hates him and, the ma- and posts lots of things about Trump's doing this, Trump that. And sure, they, you know, we, we have freedom of the press in the US. They're right to criti- you know, They can go ahead and criticize him all, all he wants. But if you want to hear what he actually says, there's no substitute for, for, uh, for going to the source. Um, in terms of what he's actually doing, uh, if, if I were to try and put myself in Trump's shoes, I think he would wish the virus and the protests didn't happen. I don't think he sees either of them as necessarily a good thing or necessarily as an opportunity, but I think he's trying to react to them in the way that, that, he, that he sees best. That's my best way of trying to interpret it. You know, and as mentioned uh, earlier, I mean, one of the things many of us took a degree of offense to, for example, was how he held the Bible in front of the church, uh, you know, using it as a prop, apparently not, not getting permission from the bishop there. Um, you know, I think many of us churchgoers uh, do ha- have a lot of problems with actions like that. And that was one of the challenges when you talk about Trump's base. Trump is not an evangelical. He's not traditionally a religious man, but he's had to manage a big tent that includes a lot of Christian conservatives. So, you know, I've had to take a sit back and watch approach to see how to see, you know, how does he get everyone together, uh, you know, to vote for him. So this is going to be a, a very... A very interesting election to watch in many, many ways. And I'm sure it'll be a good one for the history books. You know, it's going to be an interesting election. Um, it's, yeah, and I guess, you know, Nick, Nick was one of the people that I'm not sure what's uh, going back to 2016, which you sort of bring up the show. Um, 2016, when he, when he became the um, president, um, Nick was one of the people that predicted that he'd actually, he would win that election at a, at a, $4, at a $4 sort of clip. Um, were you were you surprised that he actually beat Hillary, or were you sort of in the Nick camp that uh, that you weren't that surprised that he won the election? I actually was surprised. Um, you know, I, I voted for him. Uh, I don't necessarily call myself a Trump supporter, but I see, uh, you know, you know, I, I've been a lifelong Republican. Uh, you know, yep. you know, many generations of of support for the Republican Party in in many ways. Although a few a few members of my family, understandably, have disagreements uh, about it. Um, you know, but like any American voter, I, you know, I try to, I try to vote rationally. And when it comes down to two parties, you know, I, I vote for the person who I think is going to stand for the interests of Americans more than anything. 
I try and understand Trump more than anything as a nationalist, and I know many Americans don't necessarily see him that way. But the way of understanding how he won is to look at the Electoral College and really, uh, I think, the news channels that went district by district and show how he got voter Obama voters to flip and vote for Trump in 2016. That, in a nutshell, is how he won. Um, you know, some people yeah. don't like that, but, but, that's, but that's how he did it. And the key to 2020, once again, is about watching those districts that will swing. Because no matter what, no matter what was going to happen, there's no way on earth he was going to win San Francisco or New York. And there's probably no way that a lot of, a lot of other states that voted for him were going to vote Democrat. So the strange thing about systems like that, really any democracy, is it's that small percentage of swing voters in the middle that really have all the power. Um, and I think what Nick probably had is he probably had some insight on how those were going to add up that, um, you know, I maybe overlooked. Because one thing I mentioned to Nick, in early 2016, I drove through four southern states. So I went um, to meet, uh, my parents at that time were moving from Atlanta down to Jacksonville. And I drove from Atlanta over to Tennessee to meet my old music teacher, to meet a friend of mine who lives in Alabama, down to Florida, back up. Whenever I left the big city, so one, as soon as I left Atlanta, Everywhere I went, I, I saw Trump signs everywhere. Oh, uh, really? Okay. I saw a few Bernie signs here and there, but I never saw any signs for Hillary. If I were to take a bit of a clue at that Trump might be winning, it would be the fact that the mainstream media seemed to be ignoring what I saw with my own eyes as soon as I left the city. And this is because I live in, I live in cities. You know, I do watch media sources to get my information. And one reason I like traveling to places outside of cities is that I see how different, you know, places outside of cities are from their own cities. One thing I discovered in 2009, I, I traveled through 23 countries by train, uh, you know, with my wife and uh, young son at the time. countries? By train, from Turkey to Singapore by train. Okay. And one of the lessons that I learned on that trip was that the cities of the world have more in common with each other than they do with their own countrysides. Uh, that may sound obvious and some, you know, and I guess it's obvious to me now, but mm. I never realized it before then that, you know, say London and New York have more in common with each other than London does with most of the rest of the UK or that New York City does with a lot of the rest of the US. Yep. And I'm sure you probably see that in, in Australia as well. I'm sure you see, you know, uh, Sydney and Melbourne are, probably have more in common with San Francisco and Oakland than they do with much of the rest of Australia. Or, um, or, or even something, even somewhere like Sydney's got a lot more in common than Hong Kong than it has with Brisbane. It's pretty, you know. Exa yeah, exactly. Now, I've never been to any of those. Our, our, my plan was to come down to Australia for the first time in August. I have no idea when the travel restrictions are going to be lifted, so we'll see how long that gets gets postponed. But uh, yeah, it'll be great. Yeah. But, um, yeah. No, it, it's interesting. Um, I think we might have to uh, finish up. I'm not sure if Nick was going to make it back in time, but we sort of rang out. Um, yeah, really, really good to get your insight. Great to meet you, Tariq. I uh, hope this has been a good experience. We'll get it uh, shared up on, on YouTube and uh, you better share it to all your uh, network and, and that sort of thing. I think it's been really good to meet you. And uh, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, great insight into, into US and, and the Asia. Uh, relationship and obviously Trump, um, what's been going on, you know, the coronavirus, it's, it's always good to get some uh, insight on, on how that sort of, uh, we've been very lucky in Australia, in Australia, um, Queensland's got, I think, one active case at the moment in the whole state, you know, the whole big state. 
So it's it's what and their borders are still shut. So um, it's it's an interesting time, but they should be open probably in a month, I'd say. Um, and international travel is going to be very interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see how that sort of how, um, how that sort of all goes, uh, and whether that's sort of open by the end of the year, whether whether it's sort of not a next year thing. Um, we might be able to open up New Zealand. Almost today, there should be Australia to Singapore should be happening before the end of the year. Um, end so, of the year is a long time, but yeah. Uh, the end of the year, Australia, Singapore, so that's good, but don't know about Hong Kong, I'm not sure. Uh, but Hong Kong has had a pretty good, um, as, a, oh, yeah. as a place itself, it's, it's handled the coronavirus quite well. There hasn't been, uh, hasn't been huge numbers that have been noted there compared to Europe. Compared oh, absolutely, yeah. We've had... States, states is ridiculous, yeah. Well, and that's something my father who lives in Florida now asks me about all the time. You know, how is it that, you know, each of these American cities are having, you know, more deaths than you have total cases? And, uh, you know, especially when he talks about places like Vietnam and Thailand that he always thought were third world countries. Why, you know, he's asking me, should we believe the numbers from there? Well, Hong Kong, uh, exactly. our numbers here are very, very good. I, I trust the data that we get from here in Hong Kong. I, I see it myself here firsthand. Yeah. We've only had four deaths. Um, and Hong mostly... Kong, yes. Hong Kong's only had four deaths, and mostly it's probably because of the 14-day quarantine. Uh, the only cases we've had uh, recently are all imported cases, and those people go straight to the hospital. They wait out their 14 days. Mm. Um, so it's largely been out of control, under, under control. So even though I go, we go out, we put on our masks, we need a mask to go into a shop, I think most of us really know the, the risk of us actually getting COVID here in Hong Kong right now are extremely low. I mean, it's, it's pretty much behind us. And that, um, and that tells you the general population is in that area has got a very good immune system as well. Um, well, I don't know if it's immune system. I've said it earlier, it has a lot to do with hygiene habits. So, mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that things here get wiped there's, down. There's, that, the there's of all these variant. different yep. factors. And you said, you obviously mentioned, you know, the dirty subways in New York. Um, but then there's that's a lot just, of that's just one example, and there's lot lots of, of these little, well. lots of these little things that add up. I mean, I even talk about, for example, how um, you know, we in most Asian cities, when we go inside someone's home, we take off our shoes. Uh, you know, that's natural to us. And I've been to a lot of homes in the U.S. where people don't take off their shoes when they go inside their house. You know, and that's just again one thing. Take a hundred little customs like that, and they can add up to make you seem like you have uh, have a much better immune system mm. in mm. some way. So. No, it's great. Well, I've got to sort of uh, finish it up, but thank you very much for your uh, time, Tariq. It's been fantastic, and uh, I look forward to uh, you sharing uh, talking in the future. Thank you very thank much for having me, Tim. It's been a pleasure. No worries. Thank you. See ya. Bye-bye.